Yesterday I rewrote a maybe not too important piece of code, but the idea was the code took. Let me give you all the context. All the context. All of it. <laughs> yes. So Turing invented the Turing machine in the 30s. And from there, everything has gone down. Widely considered a mistake. Yes, we should, he shouldn't have done that. Couldn't he just have broken codes like the rest of them? Okay, maybe not all the context, some of the context. So this system handles bookings and drivers, basically. Uh, we can dispatch a booking to a driver or a job to a driver. And if they don't answer in time, they will get set as didn't answer in time state. But then we want to set them back to idle after 55 seconds for some reason. It's a very exact number. So this job had a quite advanced thing that checked which of the nodes were available and then picked a node, an available node and sent to that node run this task. And I think this was done before the Elixir task thing uh, was made. So it mm. was homegrown tasks uh, and and a task runner and all of that. And everything was kind of, it used a registry to put things in and stuff like that. Quite, quite nice. But the downside of this was that it needed a bit of infrastructure that didn't really feel needed. And the infrastructure was a, a gen server containing, is this node up or not? So when you wanted huh. to shut down everything, you said, uh, this node isn't up. And then it would start waiting for the tasks to be done. And when they were done, it shut off everything. Cool. So this, I ended up in this rabbit hole because I found or heard about that there's a functionality in Plug Cowboy to drain sessions. Hmm. And another thing that was homegrown here was functionality to drain sessions. Uh -huh. And I thought we, we use Plug Cowboy anyway, so why not do that? And then we can remove this code. I love removing code. You used to only use Cowboy. Have you added Plug? Kinda. Kinda. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know where where the system grows horizontally and this horizontal part is a GraphQL API and mm. that uses plug. And then we have some other applications because Umbrella was fun for a while and they use the whole Phoenix stack. You have an umbrella now? We have an umbrella, umbrella app. It didn't used to be an umbrella app. Indeed, it's this is the kind of things that happen when you start hiring developers. Uh, suddenly, you have resources to do stuff. Oh no! Uh, and it could be good stuff, could be bad stuff. I'm I'm not judging it. It's just stuff. Things were done. Yeah, absolutely. Passive voice. <laughs> We've learned so much. Things were learned. Things were learned. Knowledge was acquired. All the knowledge. So. I think one of my main things I do at work is to remove code because code that doesn't exist can't be teched at, right? Mm. And I don't like teched at because it slows us down. Uh, there are bigger fish to fry here, but got to start somewhere. But this one looked juicy. <laughs> yeah, this is a spicy fish. So when I had removed the part that they'd the session draining, it, <laughs> it uh, didn't work very well with our uh, shutdown server thing in very exciting ways because our shutdown server thing shut down Cowboy. Hmm. And if you shut down Cowboy, the application, there are no ETS tables left containing the connections you want to wait for. Yeah, no. <laughs> So <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. Uh, but when, when that was fixed, it kind of works. I haven't deployed it yet. So we'll see if, <laughs> if you see lots of small, cute electrical vehicles burning, it's my fault. Got it. 
Um, is the EV apocalypse. Du, du, du. Uh, anyway, my idea to... I don't know if you... Have you, have you kind of uh, did the context travel from my brain to your brain? Do you understand what this whole thing So you is? wanted to drain sessions? Yes, it started and, there. Yeah, there was a thing for draining sessions, but you wanted to use another thing for draining sessions. Yeah. And then, because I want to remove the server module, because I think it's tautological in a way that... Oh, yeah, you want to not have a gen server that says this node is up, which I guess in this case means active. Yeah. Like, if it responds at all to that question, it is by definition up. Yeah, and I but I can see that functionality, which is like, okay, we go from... Uh, full speed ahead to please do not send any more work to me. Hmm? And then we can shut down. But I have a very strong feeling that the beam handles this for me. I'm not sure. We'll see in the following weeks. Because the, <laughs> it's like uh, I test in production and so do you. So, back to the tasks. Hmm? The tasks, this task is basically wait for 55 seconds, then set the driver we're waiting for to idle. Uh, but if we receive a message regarding this driver, stop the countdown. Yeah, so if he, if status actually changes. Exactly. Uh, because I think the driver can, in their app, say, press a yes button or something, and then they, they get a new state anyway. Hmm. The best thing with that code, which has been, I don't think it has been touched for many years, was that it was missing a hat. So whenever any driver sent a message with the content state, it would cancel all. <laughs> Idle resets. Okay. Yeah. Best bug. Ideal. Yeah, so I fixed that first, and now I just remove that code. So yeah, that's that's how it goes. I fixed this, and then I made it so that it doesn't need to exist anymore. That's yes, the two steps of fixing the bug. I I think I need to re write a think piece containing about that on LinkedIn. Oh yeah, and then you can you can extrapolate this. So and then you remove the feature at all yep. the entire feature so maybe removing bookings in this case or rides yeah. or drivers yeah, yeah. drivers and then you can actually remove the code base yes and then the company yes and now you've significantly simplified things yes i have become nothing the simplifier of things i don't know something like that anyway yeah so the the I thought the real problem they wanted to solve was uh we need to keep these countdowns active regardless of if this node is active or not. Okay. Yeah. So uh I haven't tested this so so right now it works, <laughs> right? Uh <laughs> I'm a positivist. So my idea of how to solve this is to have uh, loads of send after timer things. Uh, you get those from process, I think, the process module. Yep. And then you get, uh, when you start one of those send afters, it gives you a reference. So you can uh, read the timer, you can cancel the timer and so on. Yep. And the cool thing with canceling a timer is that you get back how many milliseconds is left mm, i didn't know that that's so cool uh i'm super hype about that <laughs> well yeah and it's kind of useful in case it's like oh but it's actually just hit 0 0.001 essentially and was gonna fire maybe you actually want to do something about that yeah all the the race condition goodness so when this gen server this new gen server receives a terminate signal uh, i catch it in the terminate callback and yep. no and um, run cancel timer on all the timers that have been saved in the gen server state and if there's another node in the cluster i 
add the timeouts or yeah to that node with in the exact same way that it was added to this node like in the by grabbing the milliseconds you get from canceling yes and the driver id yeah and it's and so i run the erpc call to the other server and if there is no other server okay just do the thing yeah uh, put all the drivers in idle and uh, stop yeah so i'm having fun with gen servers distributed systems <laughs> yeah and since i haven't tested this it's the best idea ever yeah right now it's fantastic yeah yeah i have i have some like fun with gen servers stuff going on uh, at a client's where it's just like there are some things we need to cache our servers are fairly stable they don't shift around a bunch i'll just write a cache that kind of optimistically writes on both nodes we'll see how <laughs> at what point that stops being worthwhile <laughs> and yep. if we often see the the caches fall out of uh, out of phase with each other because that could be in some of these cases uh, that would be bad in some cases it doesn't really matter but yeah it's you can do some stuff that's really optimistic and but there's also all these mechanisms for for doing it in a fairly proper way which is uh, which is nice it's a very nice nuance of canceling a timer that you get the remainder yeah so good api yeah. so good can you just check the um, remainder on the timer as well? Yeah, read timer yeah. is the function. And if the timer doesn't exist, you get nil or something because you never know, you know. Yeah. Yeah, is the I I always get reminded of this this table in Elixir in action. Yeah. With replace all these systems with Erlang. Yeah. So uh, and this is one of the things because another way to handle this would be to could you put it in Redis or something and have a job that runs every second, five seconds? Yeah, and it's like you could probably do something with Postgres. Like you'd definitely store timings in Postgres, and like, but you would have a table that actively churns, which is yep. not great. Uh, and for Redis, it's like, yeah, okay. Uh, that will work fine. Redis is great, but it's infrastructure that you probably don't need and you need to have a good mechanism for receiving triggers from it. And in the end, that will probably mean that you set up a gen server because that's how you hold on to a connection <laughs> anyway. Yep, yep. I helped the changelog folks. Uh, they didn't end up using the thing because they 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 did some other stuff before they ended up integrating my my approach. But... Uh, to see if they could, because they were not running uh, Erlang distributions and they weren't clustered. Okay. Uh, and they wanted to replace a cache module that was kind of old. And I took a stab at kind of, okay, but this is a, a way that you could do a very crude distributed cache and just use Postgres to um, for coordination with the listen notify. Nice. Uh, and that was like a gen server on each uh, on each thing, and the gen server was just responsible for for keeping in touch with Postgres about the lessons and the notifies, and holding on to a reference for nets table, hmm. because gen servers are great, but they're also terrible. Uh, if you model everything in your system with gen servers, you better have a good reason because they enforce total ordering, uh, like they're a bottleneck they are supposed to be a bottleneck they are a that's where all the concurrency goes to die <laughs> like yeah because they can receive a bunch of messages but they will only act on one at a time you can do some stuff to to make them uh less kind of uh, blocking for example you can do async call responses where it's like you do a no reply on a call and then later you send a reply but uh, yeah, overall, like gen servers are uh, an intentional bottleneck. Like they they fa they capture messages and they act on them one at a time. They are one process, not many. Indeed, uh, and 
that's not great for performance when you have something that's, for example, read heavy or write heavy, uh, where it's like, oh, tons of stuff needs to happen. ETS is great at that. Like ETS is is quite performant, like in memory storage uh, that's uh, that's built to be used and abused um, often for for performance sensitive things. So what you do is you start your gen server just to hold on to the reference for an ETS table, but you make it, I think it's public, uh, I think the option is, which makes it accessible from other processes. And then you can add read concurrent and optionally, or, or write concurrent, which means optimize this for read or write concurrency at the cost of more memory usage. And then your functions for operating on this ETS table can still live in the gen server module, but they are not calls or casts. They're just calls straight to the ETS table. Sweet. Yeah. So if you're dealing with ETS and you actually want performance, do not do not make the calls that access ETS uh, go through the gen server because it's the side channel call thing yeah like ets is a solution for shared state in erlang nice i haven't had the the uh, a reason to use ets well do you need to store anything in memory and operate on it quickly i really want to say no here but that's a lie <laughs> you have so much stuff in memory but most of it lives yeah. in like gen server states and stuff and if you do need it to only be operated on uh, by one thing at a time then a gen server is the correct solution. <laughs> yes. Uh, we do have a cache running on Amnesia, which uses ETS tables. So yeah, 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 yeah. That's also... Which is also a reason why we don't need more ETS tables. <laughs> we, I think we also use a registry module from Elixir, which uses ETS tables. So, yeah. I wonder if registry does use ETS. I think, doesn't it just use PG? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I think it uses ETS tables. It's something like three tables per registry depending on, no, three tables per partition and everything is, you know how everything can be kind of lots of details and complex and it depends when it falls over into Erlang land, Mm. that's registry. But it's a very nice coating on the Erlang land uh, complexities. Mm. So... I don't recall now. Is PG actually cluster global or not? Yeah, it is. If I recall correctly, yeah. yeah. But PG has a has a very straightforward interface as well. Yeah, it's good stuff. Process groups. Yes. Is it PG that has a newer version that's simply PG two? No, no, no. Uh, the original version was was PG, but as for as yeah. long as I've done. Elixir and Erlang, I don't think PG even existed. Uh, there was only PG2. Then they <laughs> implemented a replacement for PG2 called PG. Oh, they're doing the Doom naming thing. And that's the new one. Yeah. Okay, so the next version will be called Ultimate PG. Now it will just be P and the G module is separate. Yeah. <laughs> you have to combine them yourself. Yeah. But it will be a really sweet gent soundtrack. So it's yeah. okay. I gave a talk at Oradev uh, recently. And part of that talk is just uh, it's like a lightning run through <clears throat> why is Elixir cool? Why should you use it? What can it do? Tons of stuff. Did you do any speed run hacks? No. Well, yeah, I kind of had to skip nerves for time. <laughs> I really oh, summarized no. nerves. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. <laughs> On the machine learning part, there's a, a bit where I uh, mentioned that like one of the challenging parts in machine learning is like orchestration because Python needs help with orchestration. Yep. And usually they end up using something which is very similar to like the actor model as used by Erlang. Uh, like yep. libraries like Ray, for example, is supposedly kind of close to. Uh, I, I think they follow Robert Verding's first rule of programming: <laughs> uh, any concur, any sufficiently 
complex concurrent system in another language contains a informally specified bug ridden uh, incomplete version of half of Erlang. <laughs> Something to that effect. <laughs> Lovely. But one interesting thing there is like, oh, so they built all this ML tooling in Elixir and now they want to distribute it across multiple nodes. Okay, 500 lines of code, done. And while they were at it, I think they solved multi-GPU as well. So distributing work across multiple GPUs on multiple nodes, which feels, wow. it all feels very Erlang and it was all, it's backed up by Erlang distribution, of course. Yeah. And uh, while they're, at the same time, they also released uh, the batching support, which is how you get uh, kind of good utilization out of machine learning, where it's like, oh, let's wait until we have a few requests for the same model so we can batch them into the GPU. So you have essentially a timeout and a cap on how many parallel generations you can run or inferences. It's it's kind of crude in some ways, but apparently this this is something that's still kind of finicky to get done in in uh, python as like in elixir it's just like yeah yeah you, gen servers hurling distribution we got it it's it's good done <laughs> yeah i think one of the great superpowers of gen servers is this we only do one thing at the time yeah it's also one of the big um cons of gen servers or downsides which you alluded to earlier it's a potential foot gun because people yeah. think of them as something that provides concurrency. Well, what it really does is... <laughs> and they do, but they don't. Honestly, remove concurrency. <laughs> Ensure serialization. Yeah. And serial execution. But, of course, if you have more of them... And that, that's also yeah. one thing that I think you run into when you do, when you do Elixir... Early on, it's like, I'm going to build a gen server for this. It's going to take you about uh, two minutes in production before you're like, I need more than one gen server. <laughs> or at least uh, some. sometimes it's like during the design phase, you'll run into this. Or maybe it's after you've done a few of these single singleton gen servers and have tried to test them or where you're really upset at them. But it's like what you probably need, if you really do need to manage state, you probably need a dynamic supervisor and a gen server on that can be started multiple times on that. For one thing, any gen server that you can start multiples of is much easier to write tests for. It is more flexible and it is more likely to not uh, murder you in the future. But it's like, yeah, if. I was dealing with um, dealing with Google Auth recently. Oh no! I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Oh. And the Goth library, that, I, I, you have it as well. Library, the Google Auth library for Elixir. Um, it's really good. Yeah. So if you have, if you only need one credential, then you can just start one instance of Goth, pass it like a JSON credential service account file or something and have it go off and do its thing. And whenever you need tokens, you just ask it for them. Now, if you are dealing with a service account and also the like um, user credentials of anyone who uses your app through OAuth and like you need to juggle multiple credentials, suddenly you need a dynamic supervisor, which is like easy enough to do uh it, the tool the tools for it is good because you need to run multiple multiple goths you need a whole dance party of sad dark people <laughs> yeah preferably with polka music yeah yeah industrial dance to polka is that what you're thinking yeah it's yeah. so good yeah because one of the things that golf will do for you is to keep track of um, token freshness and do the refresh token dance if need be and stuff uh, really useful really important also but i of course want all of those yeah. or multiple of them 
to run, or at least the ones that are currently in use. So anything that any user that um, rocks up and like starts their session, I need to pull their credentials, shove it into Goff, um, have it generate a, an access token from the refresh token, that kind of thing. So I mm-hmm. can use it for all my API requests. And I've had similar things where I've used um, gen servers for rate limiting. So we had a, some APIs where it's like, oh, we have like a dozen uh, API keys for this, but we are only allowed to use these keys for these customers and these keys for these customers. Like there, there were a whole set of rules. And also like we can't make more than these many requests per minute. Uh, we can only make at most these many requests per hour uh, and uh, it should not be more than this in a day, for example. That's like leap year levels of logic. Yeah, the, like the most important thing was just to have ways to, for one thing, avoid hitting the rate limit, like the stupid simple rate limits, and also have some control over the, the rate limits. Yeah, And that was like, okay, per API key, we need, to keep track of how many requests we're making. This means that all requests should go through a single point to some extent. Like there, you could possibly do do things where it's like, yeah, the the request doesn't have to pass through. I don't remember exactly how I did it, but I I know there was a dynamic supervisor involved because of course we only start the uh, the rate limiting manager once someone has actually requested something for a particular key. But building that kind of stuff out in in most other ecosystems, I think, would end up being like, oh, counters in Redis and uh, yeah. yeah, that type of stuff. Uh, so how many gen servers do you need for this? Or what's the, the, can you try to draw the infrastructure for me in that you ended up building? I think in the end, it was like, essentially every customer needed uh, had their own API key and we were not allowed to (laughs) I I did test and confirm that any API key would be good for any customer so ideally optimally we would be able to just use the capacity offered by these API keys uh, and optimize them but we were not allowed to by contract (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> boo boring contract boo <laughs> yeah so i had to do the boring thing uh where active customers could hit limits uh but yeah essentially it's just it was just one dynamic supervisor and that dynamic supervisor went where like there's a that dynamic supervisor module had uh like a call thing where uh where it would spin up a gen server on one of the nodes and any attempt to use that key would go via that uh, gen server. And it would keep state to keep track of uh, your relationship to the rate limits because, of course, there were no headers or anything telling you where you were (laughs) in regards to the limits. (laughs) Yay. Of course, we blasted away the limits if we did a new deployment, but this company deployed like every two weeks. So, uh. yeah, that's. And it it was not sensitive if we accidentally hit the limits. It was more like uh, we are consistently hitting these limits. And one of the behaviors, I think, with that was just like requests start failing. Oh, oh, okay. yeah. So, yeah. Um, but it, yeah, they they wanted that under control because it was very noisy in the logs, and also um, it was very hard to find out why or what was failing. And now I could go, oh, yeah. this customer has hit this rate limit with details ah. in the log messages. Very good. You have done two thousand uh, requests in the last minute, and uh, it is for this organization. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. Cool. Yeah, because I've been thinking of, of building stuff with dynamic supervisors and what I'm running into that might not even be a problem, but I think it is. 
is to find the children of the dynamic supervisor. Oh, but that's what PG is for, or registry. Okay, cool. So you start a registry two somewhere, and then you can do the via song and dance, right? Yeah, so global registration uh, and via uh, will get you... So then you can get uh, globally registered things under a very dynamic name, like a string name. Yeah. And that's kind of what you want for looking up looking up that type of a dyna- more dynamic uh, gen server. The reason you want them under a dynamic supervisor is just that like gen servers should be under supervisors, so they are under a supervision strategy. Yep. And dynamic supervisors are the ones that are intended for varying amounts of children <laughs> and ad hoc adding of children. <laughs> That's so good. So you have like yeah. dynamic supervisor.startchild, uh, which is the thing. Cool. If you ever feel the need to ad hoc add a child, use a dynamic supervisor. Yes, uh, yes. population control 2.0. <laughs> We're going to rebrand mothers now. Absolutely. To dynamic supervisors. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> it is more gender neutral, so. Indeed. I think Indeed. it has potential. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll add it to the next batch yeah. of amazing marketing. Can ideas. houses be nodes <laughs> or homes? Absolutely. <laughs> homes can be nodes. <laughs> And uh, and people that know each other are considered a cluster. Yes, and children generally communicate by doing very loud message passing. Mm. Yeah, a lot of let it crash as well. Yeah, fall on the face, restart. Yeah. I'm all for this. And something I appreciate with, with Elixir, and this was also kind of in my talk as a part of my... So I grabbed my demo from ElixirConf, but I did it in five minutes instead of 30. Yes, that was a speed run uh, of just like, oh, this is uh, this is web UI driven by, a ser- by an Elixir server. Uh, this is machine learning inference. This is media streaming. Cool. But what I kind of wrap up that demo with is just to say like, and all of these use the same abstraction. And granted, like Membrane, for example, for media handling, feels a little bit different to like it has a little bit of a dsle feel to it sometimes mm-hmm. and it's very particular like it is a, a odd implementation on top of super or on top of gen servers but it is fundamentally yeah. gen servers it, it's just doing a bunch of things and it's doing pipelines of gen servers so there's there's some nuance to to how it differs from other things how 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 do they get any kind of performance out of it? Um, Magic or is the beam fast enough? So, in for much of it, it's just that the beam is fast enough. And when you're passing yeah. binaries from process to process, if they are larger than sixty-four byte, I believe it is, uh, they are treated as big binaries, which are uh, only copy on uh, change. Ah, cool. I like big binaries and yeah. I cannot lie because copy on write is something, something. Yeah, so so there are some optimizations that probably help them uh, there as well. But overall, it's like, yeah, when you're using the NX machine learning stuff, what you are fundamentally setting up is like a gen server and you make some calls to it. Um, and you, like, li- a live view is just a gen server with some outward-facing API surface. Uh, which is also implemented just the same way that the inward-facing one is, but you usually don't use atoms because that's uh, bad <laughs> in that context. Yeah, because there's an upper limit. And similarly, like also with membrane, like fundamentally you're dealing with a gen server that you set up, and then that one has has some kids. So cool. it's just all gen servers, and whenever it's like, oh. I got some information here and I want it to be available elsewhere. It's like, hmm, what approach could I take? Message passing. <laughs> Almost always message Yay. passing. So it's like when I want to expose information from my pipeline to my live view, it's like, yeah, I'll just do 
Phoenix pub sub and then I have kind of decoupled them. Or if I really want yeah. them coupled, uh, I can start the pipeline from the live view and I can pass in the live views PID and have that as a reference that, that messages can be sent to. But generally, I, I kind of like to to decouple it with, with a bit of PubSub because usually just a little bit cleaner. It's good until it isn't. <laughs> Your entire system is decoupled with PubSub, but not Phoenix PubSub. Yeah. So so it's, well, they kind of copied Phoenix PubSub many years ago and it still looks almost the same. So we've checked the code <laughs> and they are scarily alike. But one of the fascinating things when you build your whole system with this uh, event passing style or whatever, uh, or PubSub, is that you get like, you get a global state that just sneaks into everything all the time, which makes all actions you do can get funny and surprising side effects when you least expect yeah, it. Yeah, like with which... your system, it's like, oh, I want to write some data. I'm going to do a pub Yeah, yeah pubs are broadcast entity, and then it goes into cache, database, and to all places where things listen for yeah. things. Uh, we, we had a lovely bug on that theme uh, some weeks ago or it's still there because we haven't figured out how to fix it yet but or it's not that high prior so we have a very small cache in a gen server uh, that contains uh, like the latest state on how the system would make roots and uh, handle capacity so we have a limited capacity because we can't just spawn new drivers and vehicles, which is a shame. Um, so if there are too many bookings, we can't deliver them. And we have something automatic to handle this. Uh, basically say no and do the the responsible... Uh, what's the name for that one? Uh, whatever. It's a good thing to have in all distributed systems anyway. To say no when you can't handle more load. Yeah, load shedding. Yes, exactly. Uh, so this gen server listens for events for from bookings, which is reasonable and good to see. Well, when a new booking shows up or is deleted or whatever, we need to rerun the cache or we need to rehydrate it uh, to make it not stale. Uh, and then it also listens to events from workshifts because we fetch workshifts from uh, a third party system where all uh driver schedules are made uh, so when someone changes that and adds a schedule or uh, adds a workshift or removes it or whatever we need to know it because that changes the capacity cool um what's l even more cool is that to be absolutely sure that we have a uh clean state that we've gotten everything we need from this uh, third-party system. Once every hour, the uh, data fetcher simply gets all work shifts that are in the future. Hmm. Otherwise, it, uh, every minute or twice a minute only gets the one that have changed the last five or ten minutes. But once every hour, it gets all of them. Each workshift that's downloaded that's not in state deleted or something like that so you can just assume all workshifts that are downloaded generate one of those broadcast entities uh, and this cache system uh, that does the capacity caching and so on it listens for all workshift signals and for every one of those it starts a new job to update the capacity does all uh, batching stuff and all that, that great stuff uh, which means that when you get 100 new workshifts uh, the database connection pool gets full and starts load shedding and starts screaming in the logs nice yeah that was one of those yeah this is a gift from above <laughs> so strange but 
Uh, Every one of those events triggers a new I should fetch updates. Yeah. But that that also seems like a case where it's like, no, you probably only need one thing that fetches updates, right? You only need the last one. Or rather, you only need uh, like one per time it takes to fetch updates. If you have... <laughs> If it takes three seconds to fetch updates, you can ignore all the events. Like it's a them. it's a thundering herd then, problem. Yeah, exactly. And then you need or to run once file. more because things have happened between it. And the even more funny part here is that there's this is almost implement this is implemented in a a way that works a simple way that works. That's not perfect, but it works quite well. Um, for the booking signals hmm. or booking events. But it's not implemented for the work shift events because uh, uh, someone forgot it. Uh, and, yeah. So when I was <laughs> building that uh, rate limiting thing, I had yeah. this case where it's like, oh, but what if someone fires off three quick requests and the gen server is not up? Um, oh, and the thing you can do then is you can look at Erlang's glo global module. I think this is one of the more appropriate approaches. I wouldn't swear to it, but there's a global.trans, which is <laughs> stands for I transaction in this case, yeah. um, which essentially me lets you do, oh, only do this if you can grab a global lock for this resource. I think and I used this one. If you can't, uh, then there's a few things you can do, but you can essentially ask them to to wait. So I've done a few different variants of this at different times, but fundamentally it's like uh, if I get someone that wants this, but I'm already fetching it, as long as I have that information, I can put them on hold I put them in a receive block yep. and then I make sure that they will get a message when it's done which means the whichever is first of these hundreds of interested parties uh, I will <laughs> yeah. they will all get the same response when it's done I will only fetch it once is the Michel de Resistance solution to the problem yeah. And the global trans thing is only necessary if you need to uh if you need your request to be kind of globally unique. Uh if the thing is mostly happening on one node, uh you can I think you can do uh, well a locally uh named process or something. Yeah. There's there's a few ways of of doing the thing. But it, essentially making sure that only one gets to do it at once and the others get a message about it when it's over. It sounds very reasonable. It's fun to work in a in an ecosystem that has these types of tools. Sometimes I wonder like how would I even do this in like Python? And for some of the cases it's like you mostly can't or really shouldn't. <laughs> it gets messy quite soon. Yeah, and then the answer is usually Redis. <laughs> Yeah, and and like you need to re-implement Erlang yourself. Yeah, you need more Erlang. A system that has the global interpreter lock. Yeah, yeah. The Jill is a limitation. <laughs> I think both Ruby and Python are tackling strategies for trying to unwind it, but they need to be backwards compatible, so it's iffy. Yeah, it's... I can't remember his name, but is one of the guys behind uh, Lofty. I think the name is Lofty. They are a Django consultancy in the US. They have a podcast called Friday Afternoon Deploy, which is uh, interesting. Uh, I'm really fond of it. Hmm. But it might not be to your taste. Uh, they are very good at ranting. Uh, but one of the things uh, the CEO has said that JavaScript 
tries to become less and less like asynchronous, while Python tries to become more and more asynchronous. Mm. And both are doing not a very good job of it, if I may say so myself. That's not his. (laughs) That's something I really appreciate working on the bean is that I don't feel like I need to spend a bunch of energy to figure out async versus sync because it's almost it is weirdly explicit like you can only do one thing at a time in a single process it's linear and you have a bunch of tools to explicitly do other things like something i'm generally end up missing with when trying to do async and await and stuff in javascript is just like the simplicity of the Erlang Elixir receive. It's so good. It's like, no, no, just wait until it's done. <laughs> yeah. And not like, oh, yeah, wait. And then you have a promise that you can, like, uh, not a weird await keyword that turns life into promises. It's like, no, no, no. Just I just needed to wait. But I know that's absolutely impossible. <laughs> In JavaScript, uh, <laughs> apparently in, in .NET as well, I was like, hmm, I oh, know no. .NET has uh, a sync and a wait. So, so I was like, hmm, I, I, I had to poke some .NET code recently. I'm like, maybe I oh, could no. do this, and then this would make sense. And I was just in pain because yeah. it felt like JavaScript suddenly again. And I get that like async and wait might be kind of nicer abstractions i rather like promises like i could deal with callbacks but callbacks get unwieldy so i really understand why people didn't love callbacks like they really run off to the right uh, when you nest them Uh, and dealing with multiple ones that can go in parallel is a pain and promises kind of tackles that promises is a pretty good api for all this yeah also promises feels more like it belongs in javascript when you start with async await it's like this is weird and if it's not i cannot send around i get really annoyed when when the system tells me that this function cannot be this way or you can't use this keyword here it's like yeah i don't um, I don't know what you want from me. And I get the same thing with like imports and requires and ECMAScript modules versus common JS modules versus whatever the other ones are called. Yeah. It's like I'm trying to use the new stuff and I get <laughs> angry every time. It's like arrow functions. I can probably deal with arrow functions. Yeah, that's almost a label I'm at in JavaScript. It's I'm I'm feeling like such a curmudgeon or Luddite or something when I'm trying to work in JavaScript. It's yes. And I'm perfectly happy writing JavaScript when so again like Phoenix has pretty much hit the sweet spot for me because they ship ES build. So So good. And it's just like, oh, so I can write my JavaScript and I can use newer JavaScript in case I'm copy-pasting something that someone yep. else made. Um, or if there are some some features I prefer to use, yeah, yeah, the ESBuild can can handle like arrow functions and all that. Good stuff. But there, like, and I could use modules, but I usually don't need a bunch of modules when I'm doing like live view and stuff. Nah, you need the glue. Yeah, and it's like I, I can just write my small pieces of JavaScript and sometimes larger pieces of JavaScript, but I don't have to go all in on like, oh, but you're doing modules and you're doing Webpack and you're doing NPM and stuff. It's like I will vendor up like a few libraries without <laughs> issue. Like I don't, I don't mind. I've been considering yeah. building a small kind of vendoring <laughs> tool that can just steal things from NPM through elixir (laughs) i i think i have a half working library that can actually just download the npm stuff the challenge is if if it's bindings or has a build step uh suddenly you're in trouble 
Yeah. But that's also maybe the dependencies you want to avoid. I like my ecosystem. It's not that I don't like other ecosystems. Rust was fine. The the poking I've done in Rust was fine. Elm is kind of weird, but I, I mostly think it's fine. I have my first uh, PRs into an Elm project. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Have, thank they, you, thank you. have you got any feedback on it? Oh, well, no, they're merged and I'm using them. Oh, cool, cool. This yeah. stuff doesn't work. It's trying to treat JSON as YAML and it's not working. <laughs> like <laughs> JSON is valid YAML. Yep, but this thing was doing terrible escapes to basic strings, so it was no, it was no good. No, so I made it re- at least do a small heuristic. If this file ends with .json, just assume that you're going to use the y- JSON parser. Don't even try the YAML parser. <laughs> and like, okay, if someone needs to be using YAML for their open a- API definitions. Go have fun, but yeah. So this was an open open API to Elm generator that was oh, okay. client work. Oh, and it yeah. didn't run. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't run on my thing. It run ran on others. Oh yeah, runs on their input. Yeah. But it's it's a fun thing with kind of becoming a little bit more experienced, a little bit less afraid of things. Uh, it's just like ah, this doesn't work. <laughs> Why doesn't it work? Poke, 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 stab, poke, stab. <laughs> ah, report issue. Poke, stab, yeah. poke, stab. Because you can't assume that they'll be fixing it while while you actually need it. So it's like, ah, Indeed. ah fix it, vendor it, uh, send a PR. <laughs> it's fixed. Yeah. Plus merge. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm usually fairly communicative. I, I got a few PRs into Ash as well uh, recently. Oh, nice. So. Yeah. I think the last PR I got merged was there's this language called WIWA, spelled U I U A. Okay. Uh, and it's a, you know, when you want to do programming that's absolutely useless in any kind of commercial setting. Okay. Yeah. But you want, you want to do it for like hobby stuff. Stuff, exploration, tickle the brain, yeah. all that good stuff. I use WeWa for that because it's an array language without variables that uses the stack heavily. You can hear that it's um, a quiet <laughs> taste. And I love it. Uh, okay. I'm not very good at it because it's, and I love that too. It's a complete super challenge to read and usually to write. And to just yeah, it's it's good, uh, <laughs> but they had one of those um, as a functional programmer. One of my hammers that I prefer to use is recursion. Yeah. So whenever I can't use map or whatever, I go for recursion. And they had a recursion glyph in Weewa, which I used, and it didn't really work because uh, I bottomed out or topped out. Don't know the stack. Uh, so Stack Overflow, everyone is sad, uh, and so on. And then I learned from another programmer that you should use the repeat glyph instead and give it infinite repetitions and use the break glyph when you want to break. Uh, good stuff. Uh, so I added a very small piece of documentation that says you probably don't want to use the recursion glyph, use the repeat glyph instead. And now I think the repeat glyph is on its way out because they created another glyph called it do. It's one of the other exciting things with this language is that it's very, things happen to it all the time. There's, it's not stable at all. <laughs> that, that is exciting. So. <laughs> uh, it is not necessarily what you want all the time but for that type of language i'm sure it might be fine yeah and because i only do advent of code and okay. project euler in it yeah so it's i don't expect my code to be working in a couple of months and it's that's cool sounds like fun sounds like when i sat down and tried to do a not quite a static site generator i think i wanted to serve pages from memory in a C web server. Ooh. And it's like, oh, I need to bring in, like, okay, yeah, fair enough. I need to bring in a web server because I don't want to buy, write one from scratch. That was easy enough to do. That's fairly, fairly reasonable. And then yeah. I was like, hmm, I do need to wrangle some JSON here because 
uh, I have yeah. I have JSON in in my uh, in my pages that I have for my blog. So I was trying to actually be able to use the ones I already had. I was like, okay, maybe okay, bring in a library for that. <sighs> JSON is not like trivial <laughs> to parse and see. <laughs> I started thinking about how I could do it, but that was like, no, no, I, I'm fine with using a library. So let's bring in a library. And that was actually kind of tricky to figure out how to use. And then uh, I yeah. also have brought in a Markdown library. Yeah, so I think I managed to convert some of my pages uh to it and i think i managed to serve one of them like there were a lot of quirks uh, that i needed to iron out and i ran out of uh, spare time and energy but it was a really interesting challenge to like okay how should i think about this and if i want to do yeah if i want to do a really fast index for looking up pages like what what does that mean how do i structure that like maybe i want to do b trees and stuff or like what do I, what do I want to do here? <laughs> Prefix tree, come on, it will be fun. And it's all, it's it was also stuff like, okay, but if I want to have multiple different types that are like in a um, that are packed in a per- particular way in memory, like how do I do? It's like what you're talking about is an array of structs, <laughs> it's like, and. Potentially, yes. you might want to do a packed structure, whatever it was called. But it was like poking some C programmers in a, a programming community I'm in, and like I'm so I'm so weak at this. <laughs> I'm terrible at this, <laughs> but it's also very very fun. Um, and it's not yeah. like C has the benefit of not being a very large language, um, which I think yes. I don't think I would get going if it was C++. And I'm also not a, at all attracted by C++. I can appreciate C++ because it's uh, it's like walking around in a jungle. You can see all these systems interacting and it's, it's not a very friendly place to humans, but it's, and it's very, very, very loud <laughs> and dark. And moist, but it's also very fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I haven't gotten to to being fascinated with C plus plus, but but it's like one of the first like this was many years ago now. But I remember trying to do something in particular with C, and being absolutely fascinated with what what is a like logically, if you know your memory stuff, which I didn't particularly, it makes sense. But you cannot return a string. Yeah. That, that's just so weird. Yeah. <laughs> to to someone who's been doing web development for eternity. Yeah. I, you cannot return a string. It's like, well, you, you can absolutely get a string out of a function, but you have to provide a space for it. Like... Give it somewhere to put a string, and then it will put a string there for you. So one of the arguments to the functions is a pointer to a string, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also like conventions for how to provide a buffer to a function. That was something I ran into as well. Yeah. Where it can be a pointer to a pointer, or like a pointer to an array of pointers. I I don't remember the details, but... And then there's there's another approach, and it's kind of like where do you reference and dereference? That's yeah. fundamentally the thing, but you have to have some kind of convention because otherwise <laughs> stuff just blows up, <laughs> going uh, wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I had an interesting um, Erlang and Elixir bug recently. Go ahead, I want to hear all about them. So I was using the Pacmatic library, which is a very cool library by Evad Nevu. I might have mentioned it before. It does streaming zip archives. Wow. So you can hit a plug endpoint. So uh, usually a Phoenix, Phoenix controller, but any plug endpoint will do. Yep. And it can trigger, uh, well, any function really, but if it produces a, a Pacmatic stream and then you do like Pacmatic run chunked or whatever it's called, Mm-hmm. It will start spitting out chunks 
of zip archive based on the sources you told it to include in the stream. Cool. And those sources can also be streams, files on disk, in-memory data, like a, a mix. And if you... Uh, I think it might even be able to pull URLs if you give it like pre-signed S3 things and stuff. So it's very high powered. It can do a ton of things. You can also just pass it a function for what type of, uh, well, a set of functions. It's like, yeah, these will be generated when you ask for them. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) So what you get is like the moment you click the export button, your archive download starts wow. immediately. And then it goes as fast as the stream can process each file in sequence. Uh, it would benefit immensely from some look ahead because it can be starved yeah, depending on what your backing is. But essentially, it, it works just really well. We had some problems with it, though. Ours caused a memory explosion and then crashed instead of producing the complete archive. Uh, I didn't have this problem initially, but it it's, was kind of, it was being flaky and then no one really tested it. And now it was like, oh, now I want to use it. Oh, it blows up. Okay, that's not great. And what it turned out to be was that for s- most of the files were really, really small. So there were, and you can hook into the events of this uh, library to produce progress information or whatever or logging or uh, tracking metrics, like you can do a ton with it. But we had one of those things for just updating the UI and sending our live view some information about what's what's happening with this download, how many files have we processed, how big is it, how, yeah, that type of stuff, which file am I on? And it was like going through 7,000 files fine, and then, boom, it would blow up. So 7,001 is too much. Well, it was 7,105 or something. It was quite arbitrary. And what I realized when I was looking through it is like, oh, it actually chokes on a kind of larger archive. Hmm. Why? And it it would go from like 150 megs of total memory usage for the entire application to 14 gigs uh, on my local machine. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, and then something would die quietly, huh. which is also kind of weird. I'm not. I'm still not sure why it died quietly. I think that it hits a particular limit, and I'm surprised that doesn't cause an error, but we'll yeah. see. And when I dug into it, what it turned out to be is that this event update, like uh, entry updated was the event in in question happened so many times during one of these larger files and so quickly because it was so it happened every x amount of bytes and apparently frequently enough that i was overloading my live view with messages so there were message buildups and the messages had some data in it Apparently enough to explode to like 14 terabytes <laughs> within <laughs> moments. <laughs> Erlang is pretty fast, yo. Uh, so. yeah, this this is such a distributed systems problem. It's so so exciting. <laughs> and like the the solution was just uh, keep some information about uh, time elapsed in these updates and don't send. Like you can update the states of this of the the data you're holding that you will be sending to the live view, but don't send it all the time. Just send (laughs) it every 200 milliseconds. That's fine. Yeah, absolutely. And then it was like breezy, nothing, no issue at all. But it's a very cool library because it means that you can do exports uh, that don't particularly disrupt anything else. You're just streaming the things through. You don't have to do the in-between store and zip, no heavy operations really. You're just pulling things from whatever backends you have. Yeah, just a few pointers in memory and... And the ch- like the chunks of like, oh, we have a few kilobytes uh, passing through here at any yeah. time. And the beam does all the, the um, worker scheduling and whatnot, so you don't have to think about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's a it's a very cool library, but uh, be careful about <laughs> how many messages you actually uh, send out. One of the Swiss Army chainsaws. Yeah, love it. So I believe there's a a limit on uh, how large mailboxes are allowed to get. Um, yeah. Which is apparently much easier to hit in Erlang generally because the default behavior of a gen server in Erlang is to leave messages that don't match a handle, call, handle info, handle cost yep. in the mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So if you accidentally send a bunch of messages to a gen server, you'll have buildup. Yes. Which is uh, not how it works in Elixir. You will have errors instead. Oh. That's much better. Let it crash. Yeah. 